Hello, 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 and welcome to More Than Money. I'm your host, Jacquette Timmons, and I am back with another edition of Do You See What I See? A Black Business Roundtable about tech, marketing, manufacturing, and social media. If you haven't listened to episode 60 with Sadiq Bello, Jeffrey Jacquet, and Lauren Gall, I'd highly recommend you do so, as that is what kicked off this series. And today, I am joined by Valerie Rainford, Tanya Odom, and business partners Erica Corday and India Jackson. Our theme, DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion. As I mentioned in episode 60, reflecting on COVID's impact on businesses in general and black businesses in particular is what sparked this series. What sparked this particular panel though was June and all of the statements then and thereafter that companies made or did not <laughs> when it comes to their stances and their commitment to Black Lives Matter and by default, diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I could not think of a better panel to join me for what I know will be a robust conversation. And I really just want to thank <laughs> Valerie, Tanya, Erica, and India for saying yes. And welcome, ladies. I'm so excited that you are here. And, you know, I could have read your bios, but I think it's much more interesting. If you introduce yourselves and if you tell our listeners who you are, what you do, and why. And I'm going to actually call on you first, Tanya, because you were the first one to come in. <laughs> so I shouldn't be early next time then. That's like a <laughs> legacy. It's like a legacy of my childhood. My mother was late for everything. And so literally, I'm early. Valerie can tell you, I am on time early. That is my sort of known quantity of me. So I'm Tanya Odom, and I've been doing work in the field of diversity, equity, and inclusion globally for 25 years. Um, I think why I do this work, I'm also a mindfulness practitioner, and that actually more and more is a part of the work in terms of well-being, particularly when we're talking about people of color and wellness and all that's happening in our country and world right now. So why do I do this work? I, I don't know that I've done this was, I think that I've done DEI work before it was DEI, right? So, um, and it's interesting, this week I heard that people are now calling it JEDI. So the Office of the JEDI, Justice, Equity, Diversity and Inclusion. And I've heard that twice this week. Um, so that means like the fact that I heard it twice, I was like, okay, this is not just new, it's twice. So that's worth a conversation. Go ahead, Tanya. Right. Um, <laughs> so, so I should say this quick, cause I'm sure we'll talk about other things. So why do I do this work? It's important for me. It's important in terms of being a person of color. It's a person as a woman, as a person who cares about humanity and as a person who really has mentors who've in the civil rights movement who have taught me so much about why this work is important, not just to me, but to us as a collective humanity. Thank you for sharing that. That's awesome. I'm going to pick on you to go next, Erica. I knew you were going to. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, everyone. My name is Erica Corday. I am a DEI coaching consultant. I have officially been in this space. Um, I'm more of the baby in this space right now. It's been about two years for me. 
And for me, it started um, with having been in the beauty industry for almost 25 years and really just hitting this place of realizing that stepping into coaching was a part of me deciding to get paid for something that I had done for a very long time. Um, and I chose to do it intentionally. Um, and having to really be on the receiving end of hearing women that were very accomplished and very professional and yet had a hard time living in their skin and their natural hair being a large part of that. I had seen firsthand what it looked like to not be able to simply exist as you are. And now being someone that has two children that are half black and half white, I have a direct investment in hoping to make a huge impact on the world that I leave for them. And just from the place that the empathetic self that I am, I can't just see it and not say anything and not do anything. And so moving into this space and being visible and being vocal about imperfect allyship and the fact that you just have to, you just have to try and you have to keep moving forward and be diligent. It's a necessity. Awesome. Thank you as well. Valerie. Yeah. Thank you for having me, um, Jacka. So I am Valerie Rainford. I am founder and CEO of a diversity consulting practice called Ellery Talent Strategies. And although my business, uh, I term it as a diversity consulting practice, when I talk to my clients, they quickly remind me that I'm not really a diversity consultant. I am a 30-year veteran of corporate America who happens to have had some incredible results around diversity. And so my practice is designed to be engaged by CEOs who are interested in learning how to drive diversity in a different way from a business perspective um, focused on results. We do three things, diversity analytics, because I, I believe most companies don't actually know what their problem is. So we work to help them identify the specific problem that they can solution. And then um, I uh, typically have CEOs that I'm just their strategic thought partner on. How do you drive diversity business results? Uh, prior to founding Ellery Talent about a year ago. Uh, so Erica, I'm the baby in the space, not you. <laughs> I was at JP Morgan Chase for a dozen years where my last role there was leading, creating and leading the Advancing Black Leader Strategy that had um, pretty transformative results on Wall Street. We can talk about that if you like. Um, and prior to that, uh, 21 years at the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. 29 out of 33 of those years were all running businesses. And the last was in the diversity space. And so my, my sweet spot is helping organizations that are really ready to do something different to drive diversity from a business perspective, focus on analytics to drive results. Awesome, thank you as well. India. Hello, I'm India Jackson and I am a brand visibility strategist. Um, so I come from a very different background, but over the last 15 years, I've been in different spaces from being the model, supporting models, um, providing marketing, branding services, and strategy. And one of the things that um, I really bring to that lens is looking at a brand's values as the foundation of the brand and being explicit about those values instead of implicit. 
Um, I'm definitely new to stepping into the DEI space and having a, a DEI-focused community along with Erica Corday called Pause and Play. Um, and a large part of how we, I landed into this work is recognizing so many brands over the years wanting to have the diverse model or the black model in their imagery, but they weren't actually viewing visibility as a two-way street. They weren't taking the time to understand their clients of color, to know what their needs were and making sure they were keeping them happy. They were seeing them as a number and additional revenue and that was it. Hmm. Awesome, thank you, thank you very much. So I like to do these conversations in rounds. And the first round that I want to just talk about is COVID-19 in general. And so I'd love to know how has COVID-19 impacted your business, your industry, and your sector? What, if anything, have been some of the challenges that you've bumped up against? And then likewise, what have been some of the opportunities that this environment that we are in has presented? So. I could call on someone, but who would like to go first? I can go. Awesome. Thank you, Erica. Um, part of it, I think, really is just the fact that COVID presented a captive audience for everything that has happened this year. And I don't think that some of these things would have looked the same if we didn't have as many people that could not look away. You really didn't have as much of an option. And so there was a very different level of investment or, you know, outrage that came because people were like, wait, what? This is a thing. And it's like, uh, yes, it is and has been for quite some time. However, welcome. Let's get to work. And so for me, I had a lot of people that maybe before didn't have the same level of awareness or immediacy around it. And so it did really prompt a lot of people to begin to pay attention to what needed to happen and that maybe they weren't before. And in my opinion, it also really did bring up the need for those of us that do this work to really prioritize our own mental health and well-being. Because again, when everything did happen after the murder of George Floyd, that immediacy put a lot of pressure on people to be available now. I need to fix this now. This needs to be done now. And so there was a lot of boundaries that had to be drawn to say, yes, this is an immediate thing and I need to be a whole human being. And, you know, there has to be places to serve and support and still take care of yourself because as a black woman, black joy is at a premium. And being able to tap into that is something that, you know, we were reminded that we really did need to do. But I will say that it did present a lot more of an opportunity to take this message that had been the same for me long term. And all of a sudden, I had a very large audience that was listening and participating. And so while I don't love the fact that it happened uh, based on the videotaped murder of a black man, somebody's son, somebody's father, somebody's, you know, somebody loved this man. Mm -hmm. I do try to find solace in the fact that it did prompt something that needed to happen and that I've been able to contribute to that with my voice and my platform and what I do and how I do it. 
Awesome. Thank you. And your comment about uh, mental well-being makes me think of the other hat that you wear, uh, Tanya. So I'd be curious to hear what your thoughts are in terms of that. And then, and, and as well, how has this affected your business? Yeah, I mean, so I think it's interesting to think about this, and this is what I say when I speak now about multiple pandemics. So COVID-19 was the first pandemic, and then the American Psychological Association declared that we're living through a pandemic of racism, right? So if I think about the first pandemic, I was really fortunate to um, to continue to have work. Um, no, I, you know, before COVID, about 40% of my work was global. So no, I wasn't getting on planes, but I had people pivot to virtual pretty easily and early on. So I was fortunate in that way. Um, and then I think from the mindfulness perspective, what was really challenging for me was, and I think the universe and God works in interesting ways. So your question about challenge and opportunity was that I was doing so many of these, you know, there were all of these free online meditations, right? And free online well-being sessions and free online self-care sessions. And I was attending so many of them and a couple of things were really striking to me. One is that there were so few people of color. And then one of them that I was attending like regularly, like if I look at my journal, I was literally every day doing this certain hour. They had a guest meditation teacher on. And I found that no one was talking about the disparate impact of COVID-19 on black and brown communities. And it was just this sort of let's all, we're all in this together. We're all experiencing COVID-19. And literally as time went on, I was like, this is infuriating. <laughs> and so I have several connections to um, some really wonderful meditation teachers. And um, I, Diana Winston is a well-known meditation teacher. She's at UCLA and I reached, she and I connect anyway and we spoke and she said, I hear you. Why don't you come speak to my meditation teachers so that we can prepare them to do this? So I did that and that was pretty amazing. And then I did a couple and, and now I've been asked to actually be guest faculty next year at UCLA in their mindfulness center um, because I do bring this different lens. And, and what, what I, the reason I point out the COVID-19, it was sort of like people were talking about, we'll be okay. And I was thinking, and, and Valerie, and those if you're in New York, you know this, the sirens, looking at our social feeds, seeing who had people pass away, no one was mentioning it. None of these yeah. mindfulness teachers or meditation teachers are mentioning it. And then the other thing, just I do a lot of self-care sessions. This is sort of what I'm not as well known for, although people who've known me, Valerie, for many years know that this is another part of my world. And so all of a sudden I started being asked, can you do a session on self-care? Um, can you do a session on mindfulness? And I always made sure to also bring in the, the language of diversity, equity, and inclusion, at least the inclusion part, right? At least we're not all experiencing this in the same way. You know, I talked about anti-Asian violence around the world, you know, and the tick up and COVID-19. And then I think, and I'll sum up with this, and because it seems like we'll come back to this, but I mean, I've never seen the intensity of companies and organizations wanting to do work around race specifically since that I have seen since the killing of George Floyd on May 25th. And I am part of several groups with chief diversity officers. I am connected with people like Valerie. And we talk about that with a balance of, Eric, I appreciate your language, of realizing that we have skills and that we have gifts to give and also that um, this intensity has to be named, right? Like it, it, it is daily and you know, I don't know why, but I thought this was gonna 
I don't know, level out or lessen a little bit. And, and it has not. Right. So I think, Erica, your language of boundaries, um, I'll, I'll say this and then I'll stop. I had a really interesting experience early on going, and Valerie was, we talked about this. I was sort of like, I can't believe the way business is coming in. Like it kind of felt, we, we talked about this, like it didn't feel yeah, right. Like, yeah, yeah, like we talked about this, like this is, and I woke up one morning and I was like, okay, you can either sit in that space or you can reframe this and say that you have skills at a time when the skills are needed. And I didn't just get born yesterday in doing this work. Like I've been on the front lines. Like, for like long. some people have. Like right. some people have. Right. We should talk about that too. <laughs> we, we actually should. We should. Um, so anyway, so, so that was a reframing that I need to do. And I, and I do wonder if it comes from... Um, just some of my own internal messages, right, about success or about um, being known and having credibility in the space, which I sort of avoid that conversation sometimes. And, and so I think I, I was just confronted with some of the things that I needed to be confronted with. But I will say that um, I had a reporter ask me how many sessions I've had. And I said to him, that's actually not the question you want to ask me, right? Because it's making <laughs> us sound like, like we're clowns, right? No, seriously, that this right. is a commodity that you want me to count. Do you want to ask me how much I've made to? And I didn't answer the question. Um, right. So I think there's a lot to, uh, to unpack there. So there were tons of challenges. I don't think many people respectfully understand what it means to do this work. So I just did a session. I stay on afterwards and I have women of color crying talking about their experience and not being able to get promotions. That's not something I just tune out because I now have to go on to the next thing. So right. there are a lot of layers to this in terms of the intensity of the work, how much it means to me to do this work with integrity, which means that I will do more than maybe sometimes I need to do as well. So I'll stop there. I really appreciate though, everything that you've just shared because you know, I've had a preliminary conversation with Erica and India um, at the beginning or earlier in the summer. And part of it was driven by the fact of, I, I, I absolutely want to be respectful and I want to grieve along with those people that have lost family members, loved ones that have lost their jobs, that have lost businesses, that have just had a lot of losses. And that is a truth. As I said in the, in the first uh, episode of this series, that is a truth. And we need to, you know, like I said, respect and grieve along with them. Another truth is that there are some people that are doing really, really well. And I find it so fascinating, the number of folks that I've talked to that are doing well and feel so incredibly self-conscious about saying, I'm doing well, my business is doing well. And so part of you know, me wanting to put together this series is creating a space for us to celebrate you know, the, the, the wins that we have even amidst the challenges, but then also as a way of being a voice for other people to see, even if they don't wanna shout it to the world, <laughs> to see that it's okay to own and, and, and let it be okay that you're doing well. And, and I know that that's a, a very sensitive piece. I know that it's a fine line and, and it, it's one that we want to respect, but I think, I just appreciate you, you sharing what you said about, you know, 
how even uncomfortable you felt about the, the business coming in and how you had to make a decision around what side of the line did you want to be on in that regard? So thank you for that. So Valerie, I'll, I'll jump to you and ask you the same question. You know, how has uh, COVID impacted, how, how has it impacted Ellery? Yeah, for me, I, let me just take you back um, a little bit. And that is to that last role that I had in corporate America. And Tanya knows this because she was there with me the whole way. You know, I, I always knew I wanted to be a CEO, um, but I came to a realization a number of years ago that corporate America would never see me as a CEO, hmm. right? Like corporate just couldn't see me where I saw myself. And so I knew that I wanted to do something where I could do it on my own time where I could be an expert. And then came that role, that last role that I had in corporate America called Advancing Black Leaders. And at first I didn't actually believe that somebody would actually create a role focused on black people, right? Like, but then I realized that God was putting me in that role because it was going to become the, I never said anything to, to people who didn't know me, <laughs> Tanya, right? But it, like that was sort of the, I felt like it was a calling, right? Mm -hmm. So then early in 2019, my chairman says, you should go out and talk to our clients because like we're making great progress. And when I was going out and talking to the clients was when all of them were trying to hire me. Mm -hmm. And that's when I realized that I was, I had the ability to turn this thing into that CEO running my own thing, impacting the black community. And so I had, some people ask me if I was clairvoyant, mm -hmm. you know, God just opens doors for you, right? So here I am in the fall of 2020, and I made a decision about how I wanted to do the work, right? Right? Like I wanted to do it on my terms. I knew who I wanted to, who I wanted to hire me. I made sure I, I wasn't cultivating those relationships while I was a JP Morgan Chase employee, but I knew who I was going to go to when I was ready to launch. So I had quite a bit of time to plan, right? And so I started out doing well. The, the day after the announcement went out, I started out doing well. And then I say a man lost his life in the streets a man lost his life in the streets, And that's when Tanya and I started having a conversation around like, wait a minute, are we supposed to be making money off of his life? Mm -hmm. And it took me a moment like Tanya, I think we helped each other through the conversation, right? It took me a moment to like, wait, how was I put in this with all of that preparation, right? Like how was I put in this place to be ready for this moment, how do I, I'm giving myself goosebumps thinking about it. Like, how do I step away from it now when the world needs me, when, when companies don't know what to do, when George Floyd dies at the end of May and hundreds of new diversity consultants were popping up that didn't know what the hell they were doing, right? And my <laughs> differentiator was, I'd actually done it. So 
So George Floyd's murder changed my business. Hmm. COVID allowed me to do it in a way that really works for me. Like Tanya, I was on planes, trains, and automobiles. I haven't been on a plane since March. If I stand up from this desk, y'all, I got some shorts on, y'all can't see. <laughs> Only thing I do is comb my hair and I keep a little tray of necklaces. Which one am I gonna put on today, right? <laughs> like I get to work. I choose my clients very carefully. Um, if a chief diversity officer calls me and says they would like to hire me, the first test is, so when it's the conversation with your CEO, if they can't bring the conversation with the CEO, there's no, there's no contract, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think in this moment of racial reckoning in the double pandemic, companies are being flooded by people claiming to know what they're doing in this space. And I just feel incredibly privileged to be able to pick them instead of them picking me. And in so doing, <coughs> excuse me, in so doing, working with organizations who I believe will make a difference because I don't have any interest, none of working with companies that you know just want to hire someone to say they have it, just want to do some announcements to say that they did, like, I know a whole lot of people who could help you do that. That's not me. No, thank you for that. And, and it's, it's one of the reasons why I actually wanted the four of you together from the standpoint of representing um, different generations in terms of you, you, your business is new to DEI, but you're not new to yeah. DEI, right? And so yeah. I wanted to have that representation in terms of number of years working in corporate America, but also the perspective that I know um, Erica and India bring in terms of working with smaller businesses, because I know some of the folks that have hired Erica <laughs> to work with them. Um, so before I go to my next question, India, how about for you? How, how has COVID impacted the business that you have aside from the one that you share with Erica? That's a really great question. Um, and I'll say that it has definitely affected my industry in some very alarming ways. Um, from the creative side, photography, graphic design, um, I saw many businesses go under, you know, and not be able to stay open because of COVID, um, especially because a lot of the photography side of clientele and um, like social media management clientele that have brick and mortar businesses had to close them. And so if your clients are closing business, now you're figuring out what's next. Mm -hmm. um, I also saw opportunity to shift how you do business. A lot of what we were suggesting for years was to have your business online and in person. And some of these older businesses that have been around for years and, you know, especially local businesses felt like they didn't need to be online. And it's like, okay, we're ready now. Um, and I wish that they had done that sooner, but it gave them that push to finally figure out how could they offer some services online that were only in person. Um, and I'm going to say that with 
everyone um, having a little bit more time, especially with um, being more home or having to homeschool their children, um, keeping up with the news and things like that, not having a commute anymore because they're working from home. There was a lot more awareness of problematic practices that I have been talking about forever and no one really noticed or wanted to do anything about. Um, and so I know we all can, can you give us an example? Really can you give us an yes, example the, of a problematic? The easiest one that is actually like not racially charged at all is if you looked at your inbox when COVID-19 quarantines first started, almost every email subject line said COVID-19. So if you've paid someone to help you with your email marketing and your messaging, and they're using the same subject line as everyone else, you've now just went to either spam or promotions. And if you were lucky enough to stay in the inbox, I got 30 COVID-19 subject lines today. I'm not opening another one, you know? And so when you look at things like that, um, it really made business owners take a hard look at a lot of the agencies out here that are selling marketing and visibility services and branding services that are not being strategic and looking at another layer underneath what they're doing and customizing what they're doing for each client. Um, another thing that I noticed was, um, unfortunately, you know, George Floyd lost his life in May. And here we roll around to June and you see people following what Eric and I lovingly call the white woman's handbook of captions. <laughs> and it was like everyone just copied and pasted the same email and the same social caption and the black squares went up, you know, and people were doing what they saw other people doing instead of actually thinking through what they were doing or at least talking to a strategist that had some type of insight of the best practice to do. And so people were hashtagging that black square, Black Lives Matter. The whole point was to amplify black voices. You've now just put out something in the algorithm that has no variation in pixels, the hashtag that everybody's watching to see black voices. And it's a black square. So all of your followers who are used to commenting and liking on your face are now not going to like and comment on it. So what you've essentially done is hidden those black voices that you were trying to amplify. And on top of that, um, you created an environment where you told the algorithm that anything hashtag Black Lives Matter is a little bit less important because of your post. So we're just going to move this down and show less of this. And it's the nuances to things like this um, that I think that the average person just doesn't know. So I don't think that people meant harm, but you started to see more and more design sprints. So in the graphic design world, a race to create the most beautiful George Floyd graphic you could. And thank you for creating that. I'm sure his family appreciated the outpour and that did not facilitate any social change. We started to see yeah. more things like <laughs> um, people speaking out about their values, you know, but like, what are these values actually doing? It, it was just an interesting phenomenon at the time. And Eric and I together have had a lot of, a lot of conversations about as an industry, people waking up, people paying more attention to everything from their cream of wheat packaging, having you know, a, um, a racist undertone to it, 
and I'm saying that in a very nice way, to the Washington Redskins having to rebrand themselves when they known that they needed to rebrand themselves for many generations. So what I'm Brand hearing, examples. yeah, what I'm hearing is behavior yeah. without the impact, right? So you're, you're changing your behavior, right. but the behavior that you're practicing is not really having the impact that you say you want <laughs> or that we need. <laughs> That's what I'm hearing. Well, because I, I, it's, it's fawning and, and herd behavior. It's vanity behavior. Hmm. You're doing it because you're supposed to do it. You should do this. You saw everyone else do it, and you don't want to be canceled on social media. There was no why. Yeah. I, I mean, why it, are you it, really, it really is even bigger than, than, than that. It's bigger than marketing, right? And Tanya and I have had this conversation like if you think about, you can follow the trend of what was happening in what I call follow the leader mentality, right? So right after George Floyd was killed, everybody's like, oh, we got to say something. So you saw this rash of statements that everybody went out to make. Then it was, oh, wait, we, we need to donate some money. Cheryl and I have and the NAACP Legal Defense Fund probably got more money in 2020 than they have in multiple years prior because that became the organization that everybody wanted to give money to, right? <laughs> then it became, oh, like people want to talk about race. So then everybody started doing these conversations. So the, the whole thing really, I would say to you, um, for the last six months has been follow the leader, I agree. right? It's all reactionary. It's not intentional for many companies. And by the way, I think the re most recent, it, there was also a period of time in there when everybody wanted to say, well, we're going to increase, you know, underrepresented minorities, 100%. And I would say, well, you can go from one to two and that's 100% and you still haven't done anything. <laughs> and more recently, I think the latest thing is, oh, we got to hire a chief diversity officer. Like that is the current thing. The only thing that I have seen so far that I think is um, game changing is the, the numbers of Black leaders that you're seeing going on corporate boards. Now that has the potential to drive significant change. All this other stuff has been, I think what India describes, it's, it's follow the leader copycat mentality. And if we're not careful, you're not gonna see any progress. We're gonna turn two, three years from now and there's not gonna be any progress. Aunt Mama's face will look different right? The Redskins will have a new name, but Black folks will be no better off in a couple of years than they are today. Let the church say amen to that. <laughs> you know, and I think that there's an undertone to that, right? Follow the leader. Your heart might be in the right place when you're following the leader. But when you follow the leader and don't question what's the end result of this, what's the intention behind what I'm doing, and are strategic about doing things in a way that makes sense for you and your goals and the change you wanna see, that becomes dangerous because what if that leader is leading you on a path and giving you a roadmap to a place that you don't wanna go? 
So let me ask you this, um, based upon what you just said right there, what would be some of the questions that someone would ask themselves to discern where that leader, quote unquote, is going and whether or not you want to be on that bandwagon or you want to create your own lane and you be the leader? Does that question make sense? It does. And I think it starts with why am I following any leader for me? Why am I not asking myself, what do I want to see to be different about the world that I'm in Mm -hmm. or different about my business or different about my industry? It doesn't necessarily have to be huge, like global changes, but start with yourself. If you don't have any clarity on what you want, then you're now just picking someone else to lead you and you might be capable of following anything. So really start with who do I want to support? What really has me fired up and pisses me off about the world that I'm in? Because sometimes asking that question will show you what you want to change about it. Right. I I think also there's a, a dynamic that we're talking about race and we're talking about race in America, right? So I think part of the jumping on the bandwagon just also is is the byproduct of people being really uncomfortable talking about race, thinking about race, listening to stories and conversations about race. And Dr. Ken Hardy, who Valerie works with and who I respect his work on racial trauma and, and racism in general, I've heard him recently twice. And he said, you know, he said on one of the programs, I think, Valerie, that you did with him, that this has to be an inside out job first. Right. So for me, it's like, what are we doing? And and the other day he did a session on how to be an ally. And it was so wonderful, the steps that he talks about. But he talks about the fact that you have to understand yourself as a racial being. And I just watched people's faces when he said that. So I think also for me, I can't disconnect the jumping on the bandwagon from the fact that the topic is race. Because I will say there have been other instances where companies have made it very much connected to their values and goals and mission, which to me we know is what makes it successful. We used to say in the 90s on Wall Street, if you couldn't, if you had a group of executives and they couldn't say why diversity was important to them in their own words, in their own words, then, th- then it's really not going to be embedded in the organization, right? right. So, um, but, but I think the nuances of race and race in America, the, I mean, I know this is a, for a question coming up, but I have never seen leaders, and in particular white leaders, be as vulnerable in these conversations about race as they've been now, right? So, right. It, and more it, so white men. Absolutely, absolutely, yep. And so to get to this point, we had to go through, I would be, I would write notes for CEOs where I would have race. I would say gender. I would say, and by the time they got up to the stage, race, the word race would have been taken out of their notes. Right. Hmm. And it, I mean, I, I vividly remember this, like having people take out language of race and substitute it for background. So I think there's this naming process that's happening right now. Um, and so I don't agree with the bandwagon. I don't agree with all the statements. I saw some interesting research a month ago about what companies did in response. And it, 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 it uh, dissected it from the perspective of some gave money that looked at some did statements, some gave product right? Some gave sort of looked at internally the number of people that they were giving promotions to. I don't think we had to have one formula. And I think because we've just not done a good job in this area, we saw it not be done well. 
really across the board. I, 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 but that's where, I like, do think. No, oh, go, go ahead, ahead, Valerie. I do think it's important picking up on both India and Tanya's point is to understand what contributed to getting us here. And I think companies have spent billions of dollars on diversity and diversity programs and diversity and inclusion programs that have largely benefited white women and have not benefited black people. And I think that there are some deliberate things that have happened that caused that. Number one, we are not comfortable to Tanya's point, talking about race in corporate America. People don't know how to do it. When I was at JP Morgan, we went on a roadshow workshop to teach people that it was okay to say black. By the way, both black people and white people didn't want to say black, right? <clears throat> I think that we have come up with words to make us all feel like, you know, everybody's the same, whether it's colorblind or inclusion or belonging. Like the dudes running these companies don't know how to execute belonging. Hmm. Unconscious bias training, like didn't teach us how to deal with race, right? And so there have been these large investments. And by the way, aggregation of underrepresented minorities to me is another one of those things because even when they connected their goals to their values, it was people and underrepresented minorities. Well, if you break out and disaggregate underrepresented minorities, Black folks have not advanced, right? Same when, you, so then we went to people of color and now we're going to BIPOC. Like we're just constantly making up things to try and sweep race under the rug. And well, I think if, go ahead, Erica. No, 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 go ahead. No, no, no. I just think that if we don't force the conversation, right? When, what, what are you looking to do, Mr. CEO? If Mr. CEO wants to do something for people of color, I'm just gonna come back to where I was, right? Like you gotta be really intentional. I'm really intentional that this is the moment to not let black folks and race and lack of advancement for us get swept under the rug again, right? Like we have to be intentional as a community of people to seize on this moment and, you know, and have George Floyd's death and all of the deaths before and since then, Breonna Taylor's, like it has to make a difference. And I think to your point, to what you said, there's, there's the, the languaging piece of it. And there's always these hoops to jump through to change it and make it easier and more palatable and it doesn't work. And there's and a lot of comfortable. Correct. And it's not meant to be comfortable because it's That's uncomfortable right. for every single person that is currently dealing with it and has for generations and epigenetics has passed it right on down. And so that's not even, it's not meant to be comfortable because if it's comfortable, then you have not, you have not sacrificed anything. You have not actually done anything. And so you, you, you have this entire intersectionality that is also being ignored because you don't want to say the first word, let alone the second piece of it. And we hit this point where it's like, okay, so what are we doing? And as somebody that does focus on smaller businesses and private sector, having done something this week with a larger corporation and then getting the email about, oh, well, executive order, blah, blah, blah. We can't say this. We can't say that. And I'm like, this is why 
I personally prefer to work with private sector because I do not have to worry about somebody trying to muzzle me because I said a word that made you feel offended or you got to get up close and personal with something that you're like, now I'm offended and not me. Don't get defensive because I said something truthful. You need to address it. And if you feel a certain way, then there's something you need to pay attention to. That's not mine. That's yours. I, yeah, I somebody, so love that. What were you going to say, India? <laughs> no, I'm completely co-signing you, Erica. I recognize in this conversation that you and I have a lot of freedom in how we work with our clients that many other people in the DEI space don't. And as someone who is coming into this industry and does not identify as a DEI consultant, I identify as a brand strategist that happens to see things through a DEI lens and lived experience. Um, I watched us go from talking about Black lives to talking about BIPOC with one B lives to talking about BIPOC with two B lives. And I'm like, what is happening here? You know, and as I was listening to you, Valerie, it really took me back to that experience of like this evolution that just happened so quickly from Black lives to now there's these letters. So this, this brings me to a question that I, I wanted to ask, and that is, especially because we've already touched upon public companies versus private companies, and how perhaps in more public companies, there are things that they don't want to say because they are uncomfortable. What do you think, and when it comes to the implementation of DEI initiatives, what do you think those public companies can learn from the private companies who are not, I guess, bound? And is there anything that the private companies could learn from the public companies? And notice I asked two different questions, but they're connected. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I wanted to just say that some private companies are bound though, right? Like the executive orders in particular, I was part of umpteen calls, several reporter conversations, um, but there were private sector and, and it depended, but it was more of a question of private sector has the ability and the money to fight. That's what it was. Mm -hmm. And so if you in fact look at the statements put out, um, which I think were incredibly courageous um, with LDF around this, you had organizations that knew that in fact people could come after them, right? Mm -hmm. So I think there was a courage there for people who didn't have the backup of the sort of global company chief diversity officers that Valerie and I know that we were all in conversations. So they were concerned, right? I think that what we didn't have happen was, I have not had one person ask me to change any language. I have not had one session canceled. I have not had that. And I don't work solely in the private sector. So I work globally, not-for-profit, NGO. Um, I, I think though, what so here's what I think we can learn. I think there's actually more of a rub in the public sector and the NGO sector around issues of social justice and using the language and framing of social justice and civil rights that for many years wasn't a part of the civil of the private sector, mm -hmm. right? Diversity was seen as an EEO compliance driven strategy mm -hmm. versus a sort of conversation about justice, equality, and civil rights. I'll never forget when I first started working in corporate America, I already thought I was in like some far world and I remember going uptown to Teachers College to hear Angela Davis speak and she spoke about the fact that we're the only country that calls this work diversity that other place would call this human rights like we're, we're talking about human rights we're not talking about we've sort of taken this language of diversity to mean in other places when Valerie talks about advancement for black people is like 
the fact that we have a whole business around this, those are human rights, like, you know, in a basic structure. So I think the public sector has that. Um, I think also the public sector, in my experience, there are more people who understand, not, not in totality, but who understand the why of this. Right. I, I worked in the not for profit space before I entered private sector. I was working with homeless women and children in the South Bronx. We got who was in our shelters. We got the lack of accessibility. Then I ran a dropout prevention program on the Lower East Side of Manhattan, where a lot of my students were gang members who lived in the projects on Avenue D. We, I knew as a case manager, I may not have, I didn't say DEI, but I knew issues of access. I knew my boys were being arrested. I knew my boys had, like, I knew that. I knew I had to talk to parole officers. So I don't think we use the language, but many people in the space understand issues of historical marginalization and oppression. Mm. The one thing I will say that's coming up that's a little bit different, and Valerie and I have talked about this, is there's an activist lens and an activist voice in the public sector that we're seeing a little bit of it in the private sector but not at all as strongly and so here you're seeing things like lists of demands or we need to not accept this donation or we need to make sure these things are happening private sector i mean valerie has i don't i didn't work full time for very long in private but that, that those aren't conversations that would be entertained in that way but i think for me the biggest thing working in sort of not-for-profit space and still keeping my foot in that space is there's at least um, maybe, and, and by the way, there are also issues of privilege and, you know, savior syndrome and all of that, but there is at least some thought around what the inequities are, structural inequities are. Oh my God. I, I, Go ahead. I agree with that. I think there's some, um, there's a lot of thought, but I don't think there's enough, right? I don't, I don't know that there could ever be enough. Well, but I do think that some more structure, um, I, I think that the D is another one of these words, right, that we've made up and commoditized. Like, I think that there are more people in the business of diversity, equity, inclusion for the profit of it as opposed to the human rights of it, hmm. right? I mean, think about... I mean, and let's be clear, I'm a consultant and I make money on it too, but I'm only making money on people who I think can make a difference. I don't want to take on a client who I don't think can, but I also feel like the, the, the subject, the space is broken in many ways. Name a company that is out there advancing itself to be a diversity best practices organization. They're all making money off of sponsorships and awards and titles and nonsense, right? The awards don't, there are companies that are named the best place to work for diversity because they've given enough money to those places to get the title. And when, because of all of that, I just feel like when we're never, it is very, very easy to get into this space and say you can do the work. And I just think more um, of a cohesive framework or center of excellence focused on human rights would be a much better place to be. So let me um, do two things. I wanna bring it back to 
um, something that India said earlier on. I'm taking a look at my notes that I took when she mentioned the new DEI consultants coming into the space. So I want to talk about that. But before we even get there, another thing that I want to talk about is, and I'm so glad you guys are willing to have this conversation, is who benefits, right, from the DEI initiatives? And what I, so I think about it through, through a couple of lenses. I think about it when I think about uh, minority and women-owned designated enterprises, right? So you get registered with, whether it's the federal government or your, your state government as a minority women-owned businesses so that you could get access to things. And how that typically, I don't have any stats to share with you as we are talking, benefits white women. And so I was curious to know, what is your take in terms of DEI, especially when we think about from a statistical standpoint, more white women voted for Donald Trump in 2020 than they did in 2016. He also got more votes from Latinx in 2020 than he did in 2016. Both of those groups are lumped in with black, black men and black women, and now indigenous and uh, other people of color, brown people. What does this all mean? Like, I don't, that's not, that's not as clear of a question as I initially had intended it to be, but what does this all mean when you know you've got those kinds of stats like what does that mean in terms of dei initiatives and having those dei initiatives actually support the people that you presumed they were intended for i think there's a number of things there but part of what i hear when i hear those stats and i pulled those stats too for a podcast episode and i was hot as a hornet's nest when i heard it and read it and because I, I heard it somewhere else and I'm like, I need to see this with my own eyes. And I was just like, you've got to be kidding me. And so part of what I felt like was happening was the compartmentalizing of what didn't serve you at that moment. So I can vote for you because me being black, I can put on, put on the backside because I'm going to prioritize my finances and this is the best choice for me here. Um, and it felt very much like, you know, single issue voter type of things. Mm. And there was this place also of, for some people deciding I'm going to not jump party lines and I would rather just stay here and tell myself that it's fine because you have to tell yourself a certain narrative to be able to co-sign something that is actually in direct um, conflict with what you say you stand for and actually what you are, like how you walk through the world. And so there's this, you know, ignoring of who you are and how you are and how you are perceived by the world and your ability to kind of put that to the side and say, I don't want to do that right now. And there's, it just feels like there is this dangerous place when you look at it and say, okay, if I go in the grocery store and there's, 
you know, 10 people in front of me, I know five of them were on one side and five were on another. Because statistically, it was almost 50% that asked for two very starkly different things. Mm-hmm. And so it brought up the, the sense that what we do and all the facets of it, as much as the diversity, equity, and inclusion pieces are important at the bottom of everything, it's human rights, period, point blank. And it's the fact that there needs to be a seismic shift to how everything is done on a large level as, lo- as well as what's done on a grassroots level. Because my point of view in a lot of things is that you can change policy all day long and have the top down. But if the people don't want to do it, they won't. And that's what we saw happen for the past four years where it's like, yeah, these things are illegal, but I'm gonna do it anyway. <laughs> and so there's this place of, there has never been more of a need to peel back the layers of what needs to happen so that people aren't so divided. Even if you are the person that this doesn't stand, doesn't actually support, like this doesn't support you and you're still willing to go be on that side and figuring out where did the conversation stop and where did you feel like nobody was hearing you? Where were you no longer validated that you had to seek it anywhere that you could? And it felt almost like a gang behavior. I I, I didn't receive something. And so therefore I'm going to look for it anywhere I can find it. Were you going to say something? Yeah, I was. Oh, go ahead, India. Sorry. Uh, I was going to say that it's, it's almost impossible to have a conversation about how people vote without understanding the content they consume, right? Because we'd like to say that like we're making the decisions from our heart or from our wallets or whatever that might be, but that's also informed by what we consume. And there's this idea that because we have so much access to news, to social media, to anything available on Google, to ads, that we're seeing diversity in content. But that's actually a lie. There's algorithms in place. And so when you understand how these things work, all it takes is clicking on or seeing one Trump ad or resharing something wild he said that you don't agree with. And the next thing you know, you're being shown more things like that and more things like that, right? So the people who are not for Trump would see more things that are about not being for Trump. However, the people who were for him or um, were fence sitters are going to see more content that shows them in a positive light. And you have to keep that in mind because there's the conversations we have publicly, but then there's also what we're seeing privately. And this goes so deep, it's not just ads, it's also when you Google search something, right? It's going to show you the response that you are most likely to click on based on videos you've consumed on YouTube, things that you've done on social media. These are all connected. And so when I look back at um, one of the ads that I saw, because I don't consume a lot of political content, being near Washington, D.C., one of Trump's ads were targeting Black men that have been in prison and how some of the initiatives that he had allowed them to vote or allowed them to, he paid for their ability to work or different things like that or how some of the things that he was doing was creating more financial equity for them. 
Well, if I'm seeing that and I'm engaging with it, I'm going to see more of that and more of that and more of that. And I'm going to be like, you know, he might say things I don't like, but he's supporting black people. So we have to keep that in mind. Then the other piece of that, and I am by no means a therapist or a coach, but when we look at collective trauma, we go into fight, flight, fear, freeze. And there's this other one called fawn, right? And so when we saw things happening, we saw people ready to fight all lives matter, right? Right out the gate, they're willing to say that and they didn't care if they had to fight over it. Um, people were who were afraid to say anything, people who froze. Um, and then we also saw gobs and gobs of people who never talked about race now saying your life matters and here's our stance. And I really questioned from my perspective of knowing how these things work of, was that a fawn response? Or was it actually felt in their heart? Did they really feel that way? Because their public persona was saying one thing and clearly their private decision to vote was very different. Well, because that speaks to the anonymity that you can get in the voting booth. You can now do something that you don't have to answer for in life. Because in life, you'll say you did this, but in private, this is who I am. I, I also think... Um, he completely understands India's point, which is why hmm. he communicates the way he does. Right, like he completely gets um, how to get his word out and consistently get his word out to his base. I, I just want to I want to add back to this point of white women. <clears throat> you know, I think that seventy some odd million people and 55% of white women made a choice not to care or they don't understand, but at a minimum, they didn't prioritize racism in America. And I think that is a very significant issue. And it made me, I do know some white women who care and are very, very worried and one of them in particular, I had a conversation with her. In fact, leading up to the election, she called me once and said, like, you better get your people out there to vote. Like, what? <laughs> like, you better get your people out there to vote. And she said to me, she said, you know what, Valerie? I said, where are white women? Like, where are you? And she said, I think we're afraid, right? I think we're afraid to speak up. And she also went as far to say, and you know what? We think black women are mad at. And my response to her was, yeah, we are. <laughs> but like, no, seriously, like, yeah, we are. Yeah, I, I'm like, laughing at, I'm laughing at the question. <laughs> yeah, like we you are. I think black women are mad at us. I'm laughing at that. That's not a question, that's a statement. I'm laughing at that because to me, but that is like, yeah, what did you think? Did you think we weren't? Yeah. But, the, but I think to her credit, she said it. Right. We yeah. had a conversation around it. Right. Right. And, and my response was, yeah, man. But you know what? Now is the moment to have the conversation and get past it. Because I don't actually think we can solve this without white women. I agree. But there has I don't to actually be. think we can solve it without them. 
I agree. But the challenge is going to be them not being in fear of not being number two from a hierarchy standpoint. Absolutely. And what it is that that means that they may lose or what will, you know, is this about us wanting equity or do we want revenge? And so I wonder if they feel like we're saying, yes, come on. And there's a knife behind the back. Because I think that's why we have to have the conversation so that we all understand this equity, right? I agree 100%. And, and so I agree with you in that that's where I am as well. It's getting them to understand that. Them yeah. to understand that there is no way to move forward. Yeah. Otherwise. And it gets harder, by the way, <laughs> to India's point, right? Like this Black Girl Magic all over the place right now. Yep. And that's just going to make them recede even more into this view. And so I even said to the same um, person and a couple of my other white female friends, like, I would love to figure out how to do even a podcast conversation with Jack Gat, right? Mm-hmm. Like we, I think we have to open the conversation with them so that they can open conversation with those in their community, right? Like we have to use... I believe the networks that we have with the white women who we know are in the 45%, right? Who are willing to be great partners in the journey toward equity so that they, those other 55% are not going to listen up because they're the ones that believe that we have the knife. We need the 45 who want to be helpful to come from out of the shadows to partner with us to figure out how to bring some of the to educate some of the other 55 and bring them along so let me ask you because so. i want to be mindful of your time let me ask you one other question and then we'll do round robin parting words um and this goes back to again the piece that india mentioned before in terms of new voices so you know dei is hot right now right um and i'm curious to know from your perspective as both someone who works in that space, or if you want to say uh, tangentially to that space, what is the qualification that someone needs to work in this space? And here's the key thing for me and do no harm. Can I just say though, that I don't know that do no harm is truly a thing. I think we can hope to do no harm. I think it is to negate purposeful harm and to minimize it. I don't know if no harm is truly possible only from the stance that where you sit, there are certain things that you don't necessarily have a say in because of the space that you inhabit or the body that you live in. So I think that it's hopeful to say do no harm, but I think that it's, it's not always as simple as that. Okay. I don't like your question. You don't like the question? What don't no. you like about the question? I want to know what are the qualifications of individuals to drive the greatest impact? Like it's almost right. like right like I don't I don't want to put out even the notion that we just trying to not do any harm. Right. And I guess right? so I I see your point, but I guess what I was trying to get to and not as eloquently as I wanted, I guess, is 
with the fact that now DEI is hot and you've got all of these new people entering into this space and saying that they yeah. are a DEI, yeah. like what are the, like, what makes someone qualified to work in this space, to claim the skills, to be able to navigate it? And that's where I was coming from, from the do no harm, because it's almost like one of the things that was said, and I don't have that piece of paper in front of me, but, um, Oh, hold on a second. Who said? Oh, I may not be able to find it so quickly with all my scribble. But one of you said something about um, folks coming into the space, the DEI space and working. I know you said new DEI consultants, India, but someone else said something that made me think that made me think that it was probably me. I said they don't know what they're doing. <laughs> that, was, that was probably me. Okay, so then that was and, you. And, so, and so Jessica, like to be clear, like I think I applaud you for opening the conversation, but I do think that sometimes we need to help each other reframe, right? And I re I really think that in this moment. I say to folks who call me, my clients looking for chief diversity officers, and the first thing that I say to them is, I really would love someone with practical business experience, right? With well, the yeah, credibility. Here's, here's as an outsider, here's what I see in that regard. Does does the the CDO who is typically nestled within HR? Does that person have a lot of power if they're nestled in HR? Even if they report to the CEO, do they have a lot of power? Right. That's right. Tanya, you, right. you want to say something? I guess I, I see yeah. that look. Well, I, well, I guess there's just a lot to unpack in that question. So, I mean, Russell Reynolds did some research around sort of how you really create situations to make chief diversity officers successful. Wall Street Journal had an article several weeks ago about um, that, you know, there, there are a lot of chief diversity officers, but there's also a lot of turnover. But, you know, before everybody got on the call, I was saying about this LinkedIn workforce report that talks about when they look at chief diversity officers, this being one of like the, the highest number of people that have been put in the C-suite. And I guess my concern is a couple of things, just like we look at the glass cliff with women, you put women in a situation where there's this cliff, right? You're giving them not the amount of resources you're giving them, not the background, maybe they don't have the experience. I worry that we have a lot of people of color that are being put in roles that may not have the resources, that may not have the staff, that may not have some of the experience. And, and there was this, the, a couple of threads on Twitter that I found priceless with someone said, people keep asking me, how, how can I get in the DEI space? And I keep telling them, stay in your space and talk about DEI, right? Like, and I think that's sort of right. that's the piece, like you don't, and, and I would want more people to think about that. And I also worry, Valerie, you said this at the beginning, and I, I got chills because I've been saying this. In two to three years, all of these organizations that have come up with chief diversity officers, then ideally we should be seeing, and I don't want to start naming them because there are so many, but then we should be seeing a remarkable change from a business perspective. And my gut is saying we will not be seeing that change. And I think, you know, I... 
I, I want to be careful because I think we new, need new practitioners. I think we need multi-generational practitioners. I think there are a lot of, there are a lot of boomers. I'm an Xer. There are a bunch of us. And then you see a gap. So I, I'm not saying we don't need new people. I think some of the, um, some of the incredibly um, bold and some lacking of integrity marketing strategies that Valerie and I have seen from some practitioners that are going after this for money literally to me has has made has discredited some of the space that I've been in and I've put my life into for 25 years and and I think that now the calls are coming in and Valerie we predicted this now the calls are coming in we brought someone in but they did a bait and switch and didn't do what they said they were going to do. Or we yeah. brought a consultant in, but we don't really think they're used to having these conversations and people left crying. So that's the harm piece, I think, Jaquette, in, in some ways. So I would have to ask the question. I, I can't, I, people keep asking this question and I would have to say, how big is the organization? Like, are they a global organization? What's the mission of the organization, right? I would have so many questions in terms of who's the right chief diversity officer for them. Um, yeah. and, and, and by the way, and if they need a chief diversity officer, right? Hmm. I mean, that's the other real thing. Now, I think that could be a whole other podcast about how do we sort of help empower other people and other leaders so that this especially is not a burden to people of color in organizations, because that's happened too, that Valerie and I are getting calls from sort of the senior most black person or a senior black person who's trying to drive this almost around yeah. their chief diversity officer, right? So they're carrying that burden of being one of the only and carrying this. So there's so much in that question that, that I would have, I mean, I mean, this is the consultant in me, but I would have questions to, to yeah. in order to be able to answer I, that question. I do think companies are diversity um, experts, leaders are at different places, and so too are companies. Mm -hmm. And there's some companies that are just starting out, they need somebody to come in there and launch some BRGs and help them get some basic stuff together. Like, I'm cool with that. There are organizations that need the next generation of that, which is, like, what are we actually doing to advance recruiting and um, our talent development program, right? Like, I, I do think it's very important, and I think India said this earlier, to know what they're looking for and know what you offer. And you can have a greener um, diversity leader attached to one company, but too often I see you know, large, medium to large size companies hiring someone who just is not ready to take on the challenges of that organization and they don't have the resources to, you know, with the skills. So I, I don't think it's an easy answer, but I do think it is, what does the company want to do and how do you find the talent that has the greatest skill and ability to make the greatest impact so we don't lose more ground? And I agree with well, that. So I, I, I think it's that place of acknowledge what is it that you want and finding the person that's the best fit, but that requires a level of awareness. Of, okay, okay, what are we actually seeking? Who's yeah. the best fit? Yeah. And I think there's also this conversation, and this is this is me speaking as an individual when it comes to from the the qualification piece of what you asked, um, Jaquette, and that I think that. It, it, it's not, 
I think it is the qualifications of the individual, but I think it's also their awareness of maybe what their limitations are and the ability to say that this is what I do and this is what I don't do. Because I could very easily look at someone like Tanya, who from a sense of just to hear you say that you were able to go and listen to Angela Davis speak, that in itself is an entire piece of qualifications from you being a lived expert in the skin that you are in that I don't have. And yet I have come, come up in a way to where I look at things with what I've experienced and I will never negate that. But there is that huge part of me that feels like to come in, um, and I think me, India and I are both millennials, which is weird because I'm on the cusp of even being that. And sometimes I'm like, how did I get here? But okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, I am someone that doesn't feel like, let me come in and say my way is the only way. Because there is a huge amount of context and experience that Tanya and Valerie, you are going to bring that I can't speak to. And so it really becomes, what does it look like to say we are coming with something that makes the way that we do this unique? And what is the best fit for you and where you are in this moment? And them having to be aware enough to ask the right questions, to find the right fit, and for us to have enough integrity to say no when it's not. I totally, totally love that response. And that is a good note for us to shift gears because clearly we could keep talking and talking and talking. So maybe we'll have a round two of this. But before we leave, I would love to know um, what words of wisdom would you want to pay forward to people? And what are you excited about as we begin to wrap up this crazy year that is 2020? and uh, look forward to in 2021. So we started with you, Tanya. Why don't we uh, uh, end with you? Hey, in a minute, you'll hear some parting words from today's guests. You'll hear what words of wisdom they want to pay forward and what they are excited about for the rest of 2020 and into 2021. I wanted to hop in here right now before we got to the end of the episode, because on Thursday, December 10, I am hosting another pricing masterclass. If you are a service-based entrepreneur or small business owner, and you want to price more confidently, strategically, and profitably, I hope you'll consider joining us. I'll share with you a framework that I created to help you tackle pricing from all three sides, the financial, the emotional, and the personal. And to do that, we need to look at four key relationships, your relationship with money, with yourself, with your business, and with the people that you serve. I call it pricing made human. To learn more about the masterclass and to RSVP, you can go to jacquettetimmons.com forward slash pricing dash masterclass. Again, jacquettetimmons.com forward slash pricing dash masterclass. I do hope to be able to welcome you on the 10th of December. And in the meantime, let's get back to the show and have you hear from Tanya, Erica, Valerie, and India. So words of wisdom. You know, there's a quote that I have right next to my desk, which is a quote from um, Buddhist um, teacher Thich Nhat Hanh, and it's no mud, no lotus. 
And um, he talks about the fact that when you see this beautiful lotus, you have to also think about the fact that the lotus comes up through and grows through the mud. And so with the lotus, there is the mud. And so no mud, no lotus is something that I think about all the time. And especially the last couple of months, it's definitely right by my... Um, my desk. In terms of what I'm looking forward to in the new year, I think I'm looking forward to some downtime. I'm sort of, Erica's comment about boundaries, I'm definitely working on sort of when I'm unplugging. Um, I'm looking forward to sort of working on my mindfulness practice, you know, more deeply and, and working on that because I think that it's such a time to develop that muscle and it's, it's always developing. Obviously, I'm looking for a time where I can see my family more easily, more closely without all of these different restrictions. So I'm hoping and praying that 2021 has that I could sort of hug my mother much more tightly, much more closely and see her more often than I have been able to do in 2020. That's awesome. Thank you. Erica, how about you? Words to pay forward and what are you excited about? Oh, gosh. I feel like words to pay forward is just really continue, continue staying in conversation and seek empathy because I feel like what we talked about and what the, uh, what the fight looks like and who needs to be a part of it, it doesn't happen if we don't talk. It doesn't happen if we don't reconsider our normal from a stance of understanding that somebody else may look, live, or love differently, and being able to normalize what that is for them can create a space that there's a, just a little bit less division. And it, it, has, it has to start somewhere. And it can start in very simple ways, but it does need to happen. Um, and I'm going to be very similar to Tanya in that I'm like, me out of captivity. I'm ready to start moving around again. And I was fortunate that right before everything got closed down that Andy and I had gone out to Palm Springs to speak. And I'm like, can I, can I go see something else for a little bit and just get back out into the world? And, and it, it, there's a bit of curiosity of what will the world look like when we come back out? Because everybody, when we first started in quarantine was like, you know, what's going to be the new normal? And as you said, Tanya, double pandemic, we don't know what it's going to look like, but it is going to be very different. So there is some curiosity there. I'm very fortunate to say that I don't have fear around it. Awesome. Thank you. Valerie, how about you? Mm, so I'm sitting here thinking um, about all of the families that are struggling um, with COVID, with financials. And um, so I just you know, hope we can make it through this time of, you know, just losing our way um, and get to a point where on the other side of this thing and we have not lost as many lives as they're projecting. I'm sort of hopeful and prayerful of that, but um, a little skeptical. Um, I'm excited that I have some really great clients that are committed to anti-racism um, and I'm looking forward to just continuing to push that agenda into 2021. I am worried though of the possibility that many people sort of let this die down, right? So I'm, I'm worried um, 
that will lose momentum. I'm worried that will brush under the rug again. I know of, you know, the companies that are not letting it go, but there's, I think, too many places and too many organizations that are looking for the moment when they can step away from it. And so I hope that um, and pray that those of you who have the ability to just march boldly and unapologetically in this space, um, committed to talking about race, uh, committed to advancing Black people, because if we don't do it now, it'll be another you know, decade or two when we get another opportunity to um, and it's hopefully it's not because a gentle giant black man was killed in the middle of American streets. Yeah, thank you. India, how about you? Words of wisdom and what are you looking forward to? Oh, having spent this year watching many um, small businesses and personal brands have to pivot um, some get really close to having to close their doors. My words of wisdom are to view visibility as a two-way street. In order for your brand, your business to get seen and to continue to have revenue coming in, it's less about finding more numbers and more about looking at who's already there and allowing them to feel seen, to feel heard and feel appreciated. Um, excited for... Erica and I have some amazing things coming up next year. And I am really excited for seeing so many um, people have conversations that I think we were once told you can't have. You don't talk about politics in business spaces. You don't talk about race or gender or sexuality, right? And I'm just excited to see people doing more of that, having more of the challenging conversations and seeing more where there is intersectionality, that it goes beyond just race when we think about DEI. I love that. I love that. Well, ladies, thank you so much. Tanya Odom, Valerie Rainford, Erica Corday, and India Jackson, thank you for joining me in this series. And who knows, I might be tapping on you to do a, you know, a round two of this, because clearly it's a robust conversation that cannot be covered entirely in one chat. But thank you for letting me go over the time that I said that it would take. I really appreciate you giving me that extra space and again for joining me. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Yeah. Nice definitely. job, ladies.